Now, we've been going through this whole series uh, for five weeks now, and we're actually on step five of, of the, the eight simple choices that Jesus said, if you want to be happy, if you want to live a fulfilled life, you've got to make these eight choices. And, you know, there's, there's two types of hunger that, are, that exist in the world today. There's spiritual hunger, um, but there's also physical hunger. Physical hunger that, that we're trying to combat, we, we give to the Southern Baptists of Texas, um, and, and some of that money goes to help missionaries. It goes to disaster relief and, and uh, various things like that. But our big push every year is uh, world vision. And so we're trying to alleviate some of the uh, uh, poverty in the world, some of the, the lack of food issues in the world through our gifts to world vision. But the focus of this series is the spiritual hunger that we have to have if God is going to make any changes in our lives. And so today we're going to look at the story of Jacob uh, in the Old Testament because it actually illustrates these first five choices, these first five steps that we've talked about so far in this series. If God's going to change you, he's got to take you through five phases. Phase number one is conflict. Phase number one is conflict. And if you are experiencing any kind of relational conflict in your life right now, guess what? God is trying to get your attention. Congratulations. By the way, let's just see. How many of you have some type of relational conflict going on in your life right now? Give yourselves a hand. Like, you are nuts, dude. Yay! For, no. The, the deal is, God is trying to get your attention, and He does it through pain. Um, and, and whenever He wants to, to change you, it's always going to start with conflict. Now, Jacob, his entire life could be summed up in one word. It's our first phase. Conflict. He came out of the womb. He was a twin. He came out of the womb fighting with his older brother. When he comes out, he is holding on to the heel of his older brother. And from that point on, they have all kinds of crazy conflict in their life. And so his parents name him Jacob, which in the Hebrew means supplanter or deceiver, manipulator. And boy, did he live up to his name. And so uh, this this idea is you're hanging on. You're trying to be first. You're trying to get uh, you're trying to get the better of your siblings. And that sounds like all kinds of siblings. I know. Doesn't it to you? Oh, I want to be first. No, I want to be first. No, I want to be first. No, after you. No, that never happens, right? And, and siblings, many times, I'll be first even if I have to cheat to be first. Well, that's what Jacob did. So they had uh, all kinds of conflict. Jacob cheats his older brother out of his rightful inheritance. And so they were estranged from each other for their entire life. And when you study the life of Jacob, there's several chapters in the book of Genesis about Jacob. You find out that Jacob handles conflict the same way. He has conflict with his brother, with his wife, with his father-in-law, with his brothers-in-law, conflict with God. He always handles conflict the same way. You know what he does? He runs. Conflict in his life. Let's get out of Dodge. That's what he's did. So he's having conflict everywhere and God's trying to get his attention and he's running. When we pick up the story, we're in Genesis chapter 31 and, and we're going to read into 32 in just a minute. And Jacob is between a rock and a hard place. He has two conflicts going on simultaneously. He, he couldn't settle for one. He wanted two at the same time. First, he's got conflict with his father-in-law. His father-in-law is named Laban. Now, Laban deceived Jacob. It's kind of a funny story because Jacob kind of gets his, his comeuppance because his father-in-law deceives him. Jacob falls in love with one of the, the, the daughters. Her name is Rachel. And so he says, I will work for you seven years to, uh, to win the hand of your daughter. And he says, oh, great. So after, after a week of 
feasting and all that stuff. He actually tricks him and he puts Leah, the older daughter, in, in the veil and they actually marry. And he doesn't know till the next morning. It must have been some kind of wedding party that he didn't realize till the next morning. He married the wrong one. And it wasn't the pretty sister that he married. So then he has to serve another seven years for Rachel, the one that he really loved. And so he's got all this conflict with his father-in-law going on. And, and it is not a good thing. Years into this whole relationship, God blesses him anyway. So he's increased in, in, in uh, livestock and, and he's got two wives and, and he's got all of these children, 11 children. And look what happens in Genesis 31, 1 and 2. But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons, OK, that's his brothers in law, were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said, because under Jacob's leadership, the flocks were just multiplying like crazy. Jacob has robbed everything from our father. He has gained all his wealth at our father's expense. The problem is they're jealous. He's got all this stuff. It should be ours because it belonged to our father. So now he has conflict with his brothers-in-law. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude towards him. So he realizes, man, I've been here at this point. He's been there about 22 years working under Laban. He's like, ah, this is going south. I got to get out of here. So he decides to take his family with him. Quietly, he's going to run away quietly. When you have two wives, 11 sons and thousands of sheep and goats, how do you run away quietly? Well, you don't. So he gets out of there and Laban hears about it. He runs and Laban hears about it. And uh, Laban's like, dude, you're taking the grandkids. You're not taking my grandkids. And some of y'all understand. I already heard that. That's right. Don't you take my grandkids. You ever hear parents say that to you? If you, you know, doesn't matter what God wants you to do, but mom wants you to stay close because grandkids are close. Sorry, moms. I didn't mean to. I have conflict now with all of the moms in the room. Um, but but it didn't matter. He, you're not taking my grandkids. So Laban starts after him to get Jacob back. That's big honking conflict. Numero uno. Now. Jacob starts to think to himself, and, and he actually has a dream from God, and God says, I want you to go back to your homeland. Oh, no. Because big uh, honking conflict, numero dos, is waiting back home. Who's, who's back home? Esau, the one he ripped off from his inheritance. So Jacob devises a plan, because he's always devising a plan. That's what he did. He was a manipulator. Here's his plan. See if you think this is an ingenious plan or not. I'll send messengers back home to my brother with tons and tons of gifts and offerings and I'll buy him off. Maybe if I send enough cash, he'll forget about the fact that I stole his inheritance. Does that sound like a good plan? Let's see what happens. Verse six, after delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, well, we met your brother Esau and he's already on his way to meet you with an army. And Jacob was what? Terrified. My translation of that, that, those last few words. Oh, crap. He's coming for payback. That's a loose translation, but it's close. His father-in-law is coming one way. His brother's coming after him another way. He's reaping a lifetime of bad choices, bad decisions. It's out of his hands now. And that's stage one, conflict. And what do you think he does when he's when he's finally at the end of his rope? He can't run anymore because he's he's got folks coming both. What do you think he does finally at this point? He prays last resort, last resort. Let's not talk to the God of the universe before stuff happens. Let's wait until we're in deep doo doo. Then let's go to God. All right. Here's what he says. 
Oh, God. How many of y'all been that way? Bad stuff happens and, and you're just at the. Oh, God, you got to help me. Right. That's Jacob. I am not worthy of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau because I'm scared. Oh, God, because you got to remember, see, Esau was the warrior in the family. Jacob was a mama's boy who cooked nothing against cooking. But in that society, if you stay in the tent and cook instead of going and hunting and fishing and and working the land, you a sissy. He's like, oh, no, 400 big, strong men are going to kick my rear. So he finally says, I'm going to stop running. And see, that's week one of our whole series. When you finally realize you're not God and you're powerless, what does he do? He finally realizes he's powerless and he says, oh, God, I'm going to stop running and I need you. So picture the scene. He's got ticked off family members coming both ways. And he finally says, "Uh, "Okay, God, here's his plan. Devising again. I'll divide my family in two. Half my family over here, half my family over here, and I'm going to send them on ahead of me to meet my brother and his army. Talk about a sissy boy. Let's put the little children in front and the children he liked better. Let's put them in the back and the wife he likes less in the front and the wife he likes better. By the way, if you marry two women, you're the dumbest individual on the face of the planet. But to marry two sisters, holy cow, you you're asking for conflict. So he sends the one he doesn't like up front because his plan is, whoa, hello. His plan is if if my brother kills half my family, at least I'll have half left. This is another good plan. He'll have the family he likes best. That's not bad. The half he likes better. Let's keep them. Wow. So it's kind of this divide and conquer deal. And you might want to read the whole story because I, I can't cover it all. It's so fascinating. Genesis 31, 32. He doesn't go with either group, this sissy boy of God. He stays behind by himself. And, and that night, he's smack dab in the middle of two conflicts. And he, he's alone and he gets in a fight. Now, I don't know how, how you do that. How do you get in a fight if you're alone? Well, it's an unusual fight because he fights with God. W-W-E or W-W-G. World wrestling with God. I don't know. This is where the struggle comes in. And this is where we get to the second phase in our growth. Phase one is conflict. Phase two, crisis. And you know who the crisis is with? God. Step one, I'm not God. Step two, there is a God. And in phase two, I have crisis. I struggle with him. Verses 24 and 25. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. When the man saw he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. Now, in Hebrew, the original, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. This is actually a pun. This is a play on words. The word Jacob in Hebrew is, is the word Jabob, and the word for wrestling is Jabek, and they're near the Jabbok River. And so in Hebrew, they're going, ha, 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 that's punny. That's punny. We don't get it because we don't understand the whole thing. But back then they would have gone, ah, oh, that's pretty cool because God has a sense of humor. You're going to be uh, you're going to fight with me. You're going to fight with me near. Anyway, it was funny. They thought it was funny. What's going on here, though, is his biggest conflict isn't really with his brother, with his father in law, with his wives. His biggest conflict is with God. 
and so is yours. You see, Jacob's been running all his life. And God says, okay, dude, now I got you. You're caught. You can't run anymore. What are you going to do? Let's have it out. Let's wrestle. So God actually shows up in human form in this story in the Old Testament, and he has a wrestling match with Jacob. And what you need to realize is God does not mind you wrestling with him. God welcomes your wrestling matches. You want to know why? Because wrestling is up close and personal. God would so much rather you have saying, God, I don't like this. I'm ticked off, God. God wants you to be honest with him. He'd much rather have you like that than have you apathetic, distant and apathetic. He wants you to tell him that you're ticked off. Tell him, let's have it out, God. And some of you have even told me this in the last couple of weeks that you've been having it out with God. And God says, bring it on. Let's see what kind of man you are. Let's see what kind of woman you are. Come on, let's wrestle. Let's get serious about your life. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, well, no, no, wait a minute. How do we know this guy who wrestled with him was God and wasn't just some hobo that showed up, you know, wandering around? Well, because later in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 3, it says, before Jacob was born, he struggled with his brother. So in the womb, he struggled, conflict. And when he became a man, he even fought with who? God, the Bible tells us the visitor was God. You know the problems that you're having in your life right now? That ain't the real problem in your life right now. They're just a symptom. The problem you're having with your kids, your spouse, your friends, your finances, your health, those are all symptoms. The real struggle you're having is with God. And here's, it, here, here's the struggle. Who's going to be God in your life? Your biggest problem is not your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your wife, or anybody else. Your real struggle is you're wrestling with God. And I want you to think right now of the problem that you have. Number one, you may have a list of ten. Tick them off in your mind. What are the problems that you're facing right now? And whatever that problem is, I don't care what that problem is. I'm going to tell you something. It boils down to two things. You ready? Conflict in your life, crisis in your life boils down to two things. Will I trust God in this situation? And will I obey God regardless of whether it makes sense to me or not? Will I trust him? Will I obey him? Every conflict that you're having, that's what it boils down to. Phase one, conflict with others. Phase two, crisis with God. I'm struggling with God. Now, by the way, don't ask me to pray for you if you're openly rebelling against God. People write stuff on the back of their cards. And, and I mean, this is the church where we want everybody to come. Everybody's welcome. But if you're openly rebelling against God, thumbing your nose at God, giving God the finger, don't ask me to pray for you. Because here's what I'm going to pray. God, break them. Turn up the heat. Break them, God, until they come to a point they're radically obedient to a passionate pursuit of knowing you and making you known. Turn it up, God. Now, if you want me to pray that, then stick on the back. I'm openly rebelling. Pray that God makes my life a hell on earth. I'll do it, man. I'll pray that prayer just for you. Because my heart is full of compassion. <laughs> Phase one is conflict with others. Phase two is crisis with God. Phase three is commitment. And this is step three. By the way, if you've been here for this series, this is where I commit everything I know about myself to everything I know of God. And, and many people get to this point. Many people say, yeah, I know I'm not God. I recognize step one. Many people will say, I know there is a God who loves me and has a great plan for my life. But a lot of people get to this point. And they go, ah, no, 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 no. 
I am not giving over control of my life to God. I'm not doing it. And so then you just stay stuck. You will never progress. This whole, the, the next several weeks are all about you making step three, commitment three. The commitment phase. I finally cry uncle in this phase and, and I hang on to God if it kills me. Genesis thirty-two twenty-six. The man, that's God, said, let me go for it is, it is dawn. They've been wrestling all, all night, you know. How many of you watch Dancing with Stars? We watch that sometimes. Well, here's wrestling with God. But Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. I won't let you go, God, unless you bless me. I think that's a passionate prayer. Jacob got two ticked off relatives coming to whoop his sissy hind in. And he says, God, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. God likes passionate praying. God doesn't want you to go, oh, yeah, well, I kind of, you know, if you aren't too busy, God, um, I know that I don't really believe in you, but, you know, some people do, and you've got power, but I don't think you're going to act in this situation. So, amen. God doesn't answer that type of prayer. Commitment says, I am not letting go of you, God, until you bless me. And then I want you to notice in the verse, it says, let me go for it is dawn. They've been wrestling for hours. Could God have taken him? Sure. Why didn't he? Can God answer every one of your prayers? Sure. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he just give it to you the first time you ask? God, I need a new car. <clears throat> there it is. Why didn't he do that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think God wants to know if you're serious about a relationship with Him or not. There's a difference between a desire and a whim. If you're a parent, you know this. You've discovered this or you will discover this. If a kid says, Daddy, I want this, and you go, no, and they forget about it, that's just a whim. If they keep coming back and keep coming back, maybe it's a desire. Now, I'm not sure that applies to candy. But, you know, maybe there's other things. Daddy, can I have this? Daddy, can I have this? Daddy, I need this. Daddy, can I have this? Maybe it's a desire, and there's a difference. God says, I don't have time for whims. If you don't care about praying about a situation more than once, and then you forget about it, you're not serious. And so God says, neither am I. It's, a, it's not a desire, it's a whim. And God says, only, only hold on to me if you mean business. But the second reason is, God is not this vending machine God, you know, like the genie where you rub the bottle, and, and he pops out, I'll grant you three wishes. Because just think... You serve God. God does not serve you. Just think if you got everything you ever wanted. You'd be the most spoiled, conceited person on the face of the planet. Y'all see the movie Bruce Almighty? What did Bruce do when he got all of God's powers? I righted a few wrongs. I was taking care of me. And he neglected everybody else. That's how you would be if God granted your wishes instantly. God doesn't want a family of punks. And that's what you'd be if you got everything you ever asked for when you asked for it. The mess you're in right now, you didn't get into it instantly. It took a lot of time to get as screwed up as you are. And as I am. And so what God does is He begins peeling the onion one layer at a time. This transformation choice is about 
recognizing one defect at a time, working on that, just what Terry said in her, her testimony, working on one thing at a time until God has control of that part of your life. Nothing happens in our lives until we reach bottom. Terry said that. And that's where we cry uncle and we say, God, whatever you want, I want to do it. And I'm going to hold on to you until you bless me. And guess where we are at that point? Phase four. Phase four is confession. We talked about this last week. This is where the breakthrough begins to happen. And, and you got it. This next point is critical. You got to hear this. Look what happens in, in verse 27. God asks him, what is your name? The man asked. And he replied, Jacob. Now, okay, when God asks you a question, it's it's never for his benefit. It's always for your benefit. God already knows the answer. Like when he was talking to Moses, Moses was standing before him at the burning bush and you know he was a shepherd. So he has the shepherd's staff in his hand and God says, what's that in your hand? Moses? It's not like God doesn't know. Uh, so shepherd's crook. God didn't want to know because he needed information. God wanted Moses to recognize what was in his hand. So when he's asking here, he knows Jacob's name. He wants Jacob to realize what's going on. You see, in ancient times, names were chosen because of their meaning, not for how nice they sounded. So you could be named for a profession like I'm a baker or I'm, I'm a carpenter or I'm a smith. That, you could be named for that. Or you could be named for a relative like Jackson or, or Johnson, something like that. Or you could be named uh, surrounding circumstances that are going on in the world at that time. Jabez, some of you heard about Jabez. His name means pain. He, he, he was born in great pain and so his mama names him pain. Can you just imagine that one on the playground? Hey, causes mama pain. When do you think he's going to be picked for the kickball game? I want mama's pain on my team. No. But most often, parents named kids for their character. It became your brand. And so when someone asks your name, they're saying, who are you? Give me a glimpse into who you are. It's your brand. It's your label. So Jacob's name meant deceiver, and he lived up to his name. His entire life, he had lied out of every situation. And so when, when God was asking this, he's saying, I know you're a deceiver. I know you're a manipulator, but I need you to recognize that you're a manipulator. He's saying, Jacob, I want you to own up to who you are. And, and I was just wondering, you know, if if you were named for your primary character flaw. What would your name be? Hi, my name's Bitter. Hello, my name is Selfish Jerk. I'm Gossip. I'm angry manipulator. My name is lust. Oh, hi, my name is destroyer of virginity. Hello, my name's butthead. You better be glad your name for how the name sounds and not for your primary character flaw. Hello, I'm donkey's butt. In those days, your name was your label. It was your brand. So when Jacob says, my name is Jacob. He's saying, I'm a manipulator. I'm a deceiver. And God says, that's what I want to hear from you. And the cool thing about God, when, when he says, I'm deceiver, God's not like, holy cow. Oh, no, I didn't know I was fighting with manipulator. I didn't know donkey's butt had come into the room. God's not shocked. He knows every defect you have. 
and some you don't even know about yet, and He loves you anyway. The point is, lasting change happens at this point. The reason some of you have never changed because of your past is you've never gotten to this point. You've never been brutally honest. I don't know whether you've done this. I've done this in my past where I've had to pray, God, I'm an adulterer. And somebody, oh, I didn't know. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart after another woman, then you commit adultery in your heart. Years ago, I have lusted. And so I've, I've prayed and I've said, God, I'm an adulterer. And, and I've told little white lies and I've prayed and I've said, God, I'm a liar. And I said, God, I am a jerk. When you get honest with God like that, God works in you and he's not repelled. But the reason you continue those behaviors is because you're not being honest. How does God respond? Because, see, you've got to get to the point where you quit blaming everybody else and you say, I am the problem. I sit through lots of talks with people. And it's always somebody else's fault. It's never my fault. And when I hear that, I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a long process, God. Because I am the problem in my marriage. I am the problem. And until you can own that, God's not going to work in you. But when you do, that's a broken place. And look what the Bible says, Psalm 34, 18. By the way, everybody's clear. I did not commit adultery, right? That just hit me. I, I was crystal clear, right? Okay. Psalm 34, 18. Look what God does when you're honest. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. God's not repulsed by your honesty. God comes close to people who are honest. God saves us. I pray this prayer so many times for people who, who suffer physical loss, but I also pray it when people suffer emotional and spiritual loss. I pray, God, be near to the brokenhearted. I'm just praying what God's Word says. Draw near to them and comfort them during their time of need. And when you finally get to this point, then this is the coolest part right here in the story. You get to phase five, which is conversion. Oh, dude, this has just been rocking my world all week as I studied this. Conversion is where I get a new identity. Genesis 32, 28. God looks at Jacob and he says, your, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. OK, here's conversion. Here's the step. God's going to change his name. From now on, you'll be called Israel. Ever heard the name Israel? Ever heard the nation Israel? That's where it comes from, right here. God looks at the deceiver, the manipulator, who finally owned up to all of his character flaws, and the entire nation was named after this dude. Don't tell me God can't do amazing things. God changed the sissy boy Jacob into Israel. You know what Israel means? Prince of God. Excuse me? Look at the rest of the verse and we'll continue. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place uh, Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I've seen the face of God, yet my life has been spared. Terry came to a point when she was sitting in jail. And when Greg had a heart attack, she said, that's when I finally realized who I was. Quit blaming everybody else. Shook me up. And so she said, I don't know if you caught this at the first of her story. She said, 
I'm a I'm a grateful believer in Christ who struggles with our identity is believer in Christ. It's not alcoholism. It's not adultery. It's not pornography. It's not all of those things. If you're a child of God, you have a new identity. When you start following these choices that we're talking about in the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, healing happens step by step. God says you've been called manipulator, schemer, cheater. Your name has been crook. But beneath all that, Jacob, I see a prince. Everybody else saw a defeated, manipulative, mean, cheating, lying manipulator. God says, I see the prince of God. Beneath all your sins and all your hangups, I see a prince. And you got to understand, when God does his work in you, the deepest work God will ever do in your life is in your identity. It's in who you are. Because the way you see yourself determines the actions that you take. And so most of you, you see yourself as defeated. You see yourself as all of these things from your past. And God says, I see beyond that. I see a prince. I see a princess. You need an identity change. And see, God did this all the time with Peter. Peter was the impetuous one. God says, I see a rock. With, with Gideon in the Old Testament, Gideon was another sissy boy hiding, threshing wheat in the wine press so that no one would find his little bit of wheat. And the angel of God comes up and, and he says, Hail, mighty man of valor. And Gideon goes. And then he starts, to, I'm the least of this and I'm the least of this. And God says, no, I see who you can become. Sons of thunder, these were James and John. You've heard about them. They followed Jesus and they were called the sons of thunder because they were popping off all the time. They wanted the right hand of God and the left hand of God. They're like, we want to sit in power. And, and, and God says, I see beloved disciples. I see incredible, loving men who are going to be a foundation for my church. Some of you were given an identity by your mom or your dad. And that identity is you're a loser. You're a phony. You're a fake. You're worth squat. The world has given you labels, and I'm here to tell you today, they're lying to you. You may have a messed up family life. Guess what? That means you need a new family. That's what Jesus Christ came to create in the church. This is the bride of Christ, the family of Christ. You may need some new relationships because your family was so jacked up. But I'm here to tell you, God sees what you can become. And he's already started the process if you're a follower of Christ. You just got to cooperate with him. And that brings us to this week's Beatitude, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me say it the way Jacob said it. I'm not letting go of you, God, until you bless me. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, I've been going to church all my life and God's never done anything. I don't think you're very hungry for righteousness. I don't think you're praying. I don't. All the time people say, oh, well, I'm going to do this. And I don't know if it's a good idea or not. And you know what? I tell them, I say, you're asking the wrong question. What you need is not a good idea. You need a God idea. God doesn't make mistakes. People all the time are making all these decisions and praying, God bless these decisions. Even when sometimes they know they're very direct, um, directly violate God's word. Oh, God, bless my sexual sin. How stupid is that? And God says, no, I'm not going to bless you. But if you'll get humble and you'll talk about it to me, this is this whole fourth step. You talk about it to God, you admit it to yourself and you admit it to someone you can trust. Then God says, oh, I'm going to give you a new identity. 
I'm going to bless you and you won't even be able to understand it. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's the transformation step. I voluntarily submit to every change that God wants to make in my life. So, first of all, he's going to change your identity. And then I, I humbly ask God to remove my character defects one at a time. All right, back to Jacob very quickly. Verse 31. The sun rose on him as he passed the Nile. And he was limping because of his hip. Here's a point you've got to understand. The greatest men and women of God walked with a limp. Now, the limp may have been emotional. In this case, it was physical. Dude struggled with God, and God struck him in the thigh, in the hip, because that's one of the major um, joints in the body. Jacob been running all his life. God said, you're not going to run anymore, dude. You physically will never run again. It reminded him that he had to trust in God in all situations. And God's going to bring you through some stuff. Some of the some of the most mature Christians we have in this church have gone through the process and celebrate recovery. And even though they have spiritual, sometimes physical, emotional limps, God is using them in powerful ways because they've gone through God's process. They've obeyed God and God is blessing them and he's using them. God will use you, too, but he doesn't use people who are dishonest. Paul Wrote half the New Testament, says it this way in 2 Corinthians. To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. That means a limp. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Paul says, so, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. The reason that you can't boast about your weaknesses in small group is you're still trying to hide them. You're not at stage five because you're not willing to be honest. So you're not going to receive all of the blessings from that new identity. You're trying to hide your weaknesses. To get to stage five, phase five, the blessing and the new identity, you have to admit who you are. 